Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. I have my share of life struggles around anxiety and worries, but uh, worry and anxiety are generally not, you know, the biggest areas of struggle for me personally. And yet about oh, six, eight, nine months, I, I, I'm really bad on time. We were doing a message on worry, and uh, that whole week leading up to it, I spent the whole week just wrestling and exhausted with anxiety and worry. And I got to Sunday morning, and I started to get up to preach, and I went, oh, dude, what a rookie oversight. I mean, how could you not see that one coming? I mean, preachers talk about this a lot. Whatever they're going to preach on is what they're going to struggle with that week, right? And and Satan tends to go at us all in that way. He, he tends to discourage us or tempt us in areas where God is at work in us, especially in areas where we try our, to care and teach or, or encourage others in. Lots of preachers attest to that kind of experience. Thankfully, that didn't happen the last two weeks when we were talking about discouragement and temptation that much, and I'll actually credit that to so many of you praying for Wayne and I. We are very, very grateful for your prayers. Uh, we have felt those prayers. God has answered a lot of those prayers, and we are just so thankful. But this week, this week, I've really been wishing that I would have that preacher's struggle experience because what we're talking about today is success, and I really want to struggle with that one. Maybe uh, maybe I should talk about it every week, and, uh, and then we can get there faster. Maybe, I don't know. But that said, uh, success is not something we generally think that we need to break through from. Success is something we tend to think we break through to in life. Uh, that's what we're all wanting, right, is success. But the truth of the matter is success can be such a burden in our lives. Success can as easily hold you back and blind you as much as anything from what is really, really good in life. Success can cause you to miss God's good dream because you get caught up in the American dream. Success, uh, when, I, when I think about life and evaluate life honestly, and I, dealing with success and, and, and at the same time living in God's best and dream for our lives is often harder than dealing with failure. Why? Well, I think it's this reason. It's because failure uh, drives us to God. We need answers. We know we want something better. But success tends to drive us away from God and other people uh, into our own self-reliance, and we, we start to put up these unhealthy barriers. I think success can also be all-consuming. You give all of your attention to whatever you're succeeding in because you feel good about it. And as, as a result, other parts of your life begin to wither and some even fall apart. I think a significant factor in whether success leads us to rich contentment or to unhealthy pressure of, of, of driven performance is how we define success. So let me ask you a question. How do you define success? What does successful mean to you in your life? I mean, there are so many definitions of success, right? I mean, one definition is, is a goal. You set a goal and you achieve it. There's another definition is that it's all about attainment of popularity and profit. In other words, I'm going to be well-known and I'm going to be wealthy, and that's success. And yet other definitions of success say that you should always do your best, that that's success. I, I used to try to live by that always do your best thing as, as the definition of success, uh, and, and I, I discovered it, it, it's impossible to do your best in everything. It's hopelessly 
exhausting. Dale Carnegie made another definition of success famous, uh, one that I think defines success for many of us today. He said this, he said, you never achieve success unless you like what you're doing. And to that I want to say, thanks, Dale. I mean, a lot of people, when you ask them what they really like and what they do for a living, there isn't that strong of a connection. Oh, they may enjoy crunching numbers or making sales or writing loans, but if you ask them the question, what do you like, very few people's careers and what they actually like line up that well. I mean, if you ask me what I like, I'm going to tell you I like sports, I like competition and strategy games, I like food, I like outdoors, I like fishing. So I missed my calling because I should be on a fishing boat in Alaska. Right? Now, if you ask, do you feel good at what you do? Do you enjoy the people you work with? Do you like the standard of living that that brings to your family outside of your, in your personal life? You get a lot more people saying yes to those answers, those questions. But Carnegie's definition of success makes a whole lot of people feel like they can never be successful. And I think Carnegie's definition is especially rampant according to some of the studies I'm reading among 20 and 30-somethings. It often paralyzes us feeling like success and fulfillment by that definition is out of reach. So how do you define success? And when you ask yourself that question, ask yourself a second question. What or who influenced you to define success in that way? See, my early definition of success as always doing your best was my dad's defined definition that was passed on to me. And for him, it led to six heart attacks at age 32. And he learned that that's not necessarily the best healthy definition of success. If you study the definitions of success across history and throughout the world, you find success is almost always defined within a cultural, historical context. Sometimes it's defined individually focused. Sometimes it's more family focused or community focused or even nation focused. Other times it's not even focused on people. It's just focused on material things that we define as success. So how would you measure success and who influenced that definition in your life to be that? The answer to these two questions is really critical. If you think about it, if you are successful by the definition that you have of success, but your definition is wrong, isn't that just really a tragic way of failing? So there was a guy named Matt Emmons. He was a 2004 Olympian competing in the rifle shooting. He was doing really well, solidly positioned for the gold. All he needed to do, he didn't even need to get a good shot on his last target. All he needed to do was hit the target, and he was going to win gold. So he stepped up to the line, he aimed, he fired, he had a great shot. The problem was Matt was standing in lane two and he shot the target in lane three. Great shot, but since it wasn't the right target, he got a zero and he went from gold to eighth place. I think that's a metaphor for many of us in life. We do well in life. We have lots of markers of success by various people's definitions, hitting what we're aiming at. It all looks so good, but you get to the goal you're shooting for and you begin to wonder, was I even aiming at the right target in life? See, if we're so successful, then why don't we have this rich, satisfying, deep, enduring contentment in life? I think few of us live in that place. We have many moments of joy in our success. And then we have the pressure of doing better, of another goal, of sustaining the success that we've already had in life. 
Jesus' definition of success is different. One day, actually, is, uh, he has this interaction with this guy that we call him the rich young ruler. That's what he's called in the text. Uh, he has all the marks of success. He's rich, he's young, he's good-looking, and he's prominent recognition as a leader. This young man asks Jesus what he must do to have success in life and, and be good with God and, and be meaningful in their life. And, he, and Jesus goes on to tell him, sell all you have and give it to the poor. And it says the man went away sad because he had so much success and wealth in his life. Now, we know God's not against wealth, so that's obviously not the point of what Jesus is making here, right? There is something much deeper, something more significant going on that Jesus recognizes that true success, rich contentment, the best good life was missing in this young man's life. And for some reason, his visible success was standing in the way of realizing true success. So we've been studying Joseph. We're going to continue that today. And we're going to see in Joseph something about breaking through from success to rich contentment, enduring contentment in life. And his life also leads us to what I think is God's, our creator's greatest, best definition of success. So, so let's just kind of get into that, recap where we've been in the story so far. So Joseph's life, we, basically he got a dream from God about great impact in his life, only to be hated jealously by his brothers, sold into slavery. He's sold into slavery, he rises to a position of honor, is accused wrongly, thrown into prison, where he again finds favor. And then a few years later, the opportunity is given him by God to interpret the dreams of two of Pharaoh's officials, hoping that when the dream is fulfilled in three days, the cupbearer would remember Joseph and say a good word to Pharaoh, and Joseph would then be freed. But as we ended up reading last week, the chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. And so this is where we continue the story. The very next verse says, when two full years had passed. Think about it. Two long, seemingly unending years. Now, see, we know the end of the story. We know in just a couple verses later we're going to read that things are going to change all of a sudden for him. But, and some of you have been so discouraged for a long time, you, you don't know if you can make it another week. But, but even you know that if you knew it was going to just be another two years... And then it would all change. Every single comfort and pleasure would be yours. It would all be answered. The dream fulfilled. It would be completely changed. You would be able to deal with life in a whole different way right now, even in the midst of your discouragement. But Joseph didn't know that was going to happen. And so often we don't know when that time is either. So two years later, Pharaoh has two dreams that he knows are from God. They mean something. and He knows he needs to know what they mean. So Pharaoh gets up in the middle of the night and he calls all of his wise men and priests. This sounds a lot like a boss I used to have. We used to call at 4.30 in the morning and just start talking about his idea that he had and expecting me to be awake. It's that kind of a call. Pharaoh's wise men do whatever it is they do to figure out the dreams, but no one has any idea. Pharaoh's extremely troubled. And beside him, of course, is the cupbearer. After all, getting up in the middle of the night, spending hours in the middle of the night listening to wise men fail to interpret your dream provokes a tremendous need for a drink. So the cupbearer has to be there. As the cupbearer stands there listening, he begins to think, well, what does this remind me of? Where have I seen something? Did somebody interpret? Oh, I had a dream. Somebody interpreted it. It finally dawns on him. I think, think? Like, I've never seen this before. Really? 
Kind of slow, about two years late, don't you think? So verse 9 says this, Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Today I am reminded of my shortcomings. Really, just today? So the cupbearer goes on and says, Well, yeah, the, the, the baker you beheaded and I when you were angry with us and threw us in prison a couple years ago. We had dreams. We couldn't interpret them. There was this guy named Joe or Josie or Joseph or something like that. He interpreted the dreams. Maybe he can do it for you, right? So let's skip down to verse 14. Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. So in the snap of a finger, everything changed for Joseph. From filth to shaved and clean, from smelly rags to beautiful expensive clothing, now appearing before Pharaoh himself. Thirteen long years of abuse and disappointment, seeming success, followed by unbearable setback. It's hard to imagine anybody's life completely changing any more than Joseph's life changed in that moment. Joseph immediately discerns the meaning of the dreams. But, but knowing what those dreams mean, doesn't, doesn't this seem like Joseph's moment to both shine and, and, and to get what he wants in life? I mean, after all, Pharaoh's wise men and priests had no clue. Joseph knows something that the most powerful man in the world desperately wants to know. Joseph has all the leverage all the negotiating power, and everyone knows that success comes from making the most advantageous deal for yourself, right? So what we naturally think Joseph might say is, sure, I know the interpretation of the dream, and I'm willing to let you know the dream. And by the way, it's hugely important, like, like survival important, that you know the meaning of this dream. But I want some things first. Now, what would you want if you were Joseph all those years? I think if it was me, I'd want enough money to retire and have servants doing anything I wanted any time since I'd served thanklessly for so many years. I'd, I'd want Pharaoh to probably arrange some punishment for my siblings who sold me into slavery. I would probably at least want Potiphar's wife to be thrown into prison at the very least and Potiphar maybe to be exiled. I mean, this is Joe's opportunity to get a great deal, to get justice. But that's not what Joseph is. And it's not what his motivation behind his definition of success causes him to even want. See, this moment of power and opportunity doesn't actually change anything about Joseph. He is no different in this moment than when he was a slave or in prison. His life is simply about serving, whether in great or small ways. Now, we've kind of jumped ahead in the story, so let's go back and walk our ways through it and catch up. So Pharaoh tells him the two dreams. The one dream is seven fat cows, and then seven skinny cows come out and eat the fat cows. And then there's the second dream, seven full heads of grain and seven withered heads of grain come out and swallow up the seven full heads. And then verse 25, then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. And Joseph goes on to explain that there will be seven years of abundant food and prosperity followed by seven years of severe famine. So Joseph has done what he was asked to do in this moment, interpret the dream. But Joseph goes on and he starts to tell Pharaoh what to do in response. Now understand, this is not something you would do with a monarch who believed he was the mediator between the gods and men and who believed that when he died, he would become one of the gods. You don't do this. You don't pipe up and offer your advice unless you have a death wish without being asked. But Joseph casually goes on 
And he says, now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of a harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food during these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. Now, Some people read this and they think Joseph is jockeying for a job, basically saying, you know, all your wise men couldn't do what I just did, so look who's the wisest, pick me. But if you understand the Egyptian culture, that interpretation is preposterous. Egyptians in that time saw themselves as the superior race. We actually see how strong this is several chapters later in the story when we see Joseph who has now been serving faithfully and successfully as the second most powerful ruler in Egypt still not being allowed to eat at the same table with the Egyptians because he wasn't one of them. Joseph knew this already. He would have been convinced there was absolutely no possibility that Pharaoh would ever consider him. Besides, Look at Joseph's resume. Small-time, spoiled punk, shepherd's kid from a tribal area of the Middle East, slave who, yeah, he became, you know, overseeing a bunch of slaves, but then he got thrown in prison and he cleaned the latrines good enough that he oversaw the prison latrine crew. I mean, come on, this is not the resume of vice president. So what is Joseph doing? What he's doing is showing us what it means to be truly successful, confident you are shooting at the right target. He gives us in this two critical lessons to being successful leaders and influences in our life because really success for most of us is defined by a certain measure of influence, whether it's positive influence as a parent or positive influence as a leader in your business. Influence is a part of success in almost all of our definitions. And it also leads us to the Bible's best definition of success. So first, breaking through success to contentment means recognizing God's hand in all things. Joseph has such confidence in who God is that he speaks up when standing in the midst of power and opulence because Joseph knows that the only real lasting authority in this world is God, and God can move Pharaoh like a pawn on a chessboard. Joseph isn't enamored by Pharaoh. I mean, most of us are enamored by other people's success. When we're around somebody who's far more successful in our definition of success in life, we tend to feel inferior. We tend to not speak up. We tend to idolize them. We tend to be a little bit reticent inside to do anything. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't respect and be open to learning from such people, but enamored? No, we shouldn't be enamored. Remember the story of the rich young ruler we mentioned earlier? So Jesus' disciples respond to Jesus confronting this rich young ruler by saying to him, then who can be saved, Jesus? I mean, Jesus, this guy, he's good. He's successful. He's wealthy. He's respected. He is what all of us want to be. And Jesus actually says it's really hard. It's not impossible, but it's really hard to be successful. And that's a hard word to say. I've said it way too many times today. To be successful and influential and, and, and be saved and find true success and rich contentment. So let's look back at verse 16 back in Joseph's story where Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hear you can interpret dreams, he says to Joseph. And Joseph's reply is, I cannot do it, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. 
His first response in his greatest opportunity, already knowing that God's going to work through him, I can't, but God can. And by implication, Joseph is also saying, you can't, but God can. You can't find true wisdom and meaning and success, but God can lead you into it. See, Joseph simply recognizes God's hand. Why? Because even in the heartache and tragedy Joseph has experienced over and over and over again, he's seen God's hand at work, giving him meaning and purpose and favor wherever he was, even when it was the pit of the dungeon. I've talked probably too many times over the years about how I went through four years of pretty serious depression. What drove me into the depression was a wrong definition of success. See, I was going through graduate degrees, working insane hours, trying to get through college debt-free, and all that time, people I'd gone to school with were already out doing what I wanted to do, having great success. And you know, one of the big things that drove the depression in me was I struggled to feel good about myself and where I was in life. So imagine what happened when my first full-time ministry job uh, resulted in the church growing in 18 months by fourfold, and, and, and God blessed the areas I was in to grow even more than that. My sense of self in that moment was finally validated by success. It was a thrilling time of learning leadership and ministry, and when I, but, but, but when I look back on it, it was also a time that I now cringe about at who I became in that success. Instead of saying, I can't, but God can, like Joseph, I found myself starting to say, I can. And only after long, theologically correct thinking would I come back with, God did and God can. I became arrogant. And arrogance damaged me. That arrogance damaged others. It took some humbling experiences for me to even realize what was wrong with me. Isn't that what happens in so many of our own lives? You have success in your career. You start saying and thinking, I can do this. And while you may not say it, the more success and the higher in leadership you go and and the more influence you continue to have, you start to think, I really am better than whatever. And you begin to think they can't relate to me because they don't understand leadership and success like I do because they don't live where I do. And today, I try to listen for when I use that phrase, I can do that, coming out of my mouth. Now, don't get legalistic on me and go home and say, Ross said I can never say I can do that. That's not the point of what we're saying. God doesn't want us to hide our gifts and experience he's given us. Saying those four words is not wrong. But for me, I try to catch when I start saying those words, I can, and I try to make it into an intentional heart check moment. And honestly... There are still way too many times when I do that heart check where I feel myself and I realize that I'm saying that because I need to be prideful. I need to share my accomplishments in order to feel good about myself in that moment. See, too often our ego and our need for recognition begins to edge God out of our lives. And sometimes I think when I start to say I can, that God backs off and just says, go ahead, we'll see. See, but Joseph, Joseph knows God's love, knows he's a child of God. Whether he's in prison or standing before Pharaoh, he's the same person in both places. Success doesn't change him. He's just serving whoever God sets in front of him. I mean, think about it for a second. Isn't the primary thing that robs us 
of contentment in life? Isn't it the constant pressure to perform, to succeed? And, and even when we've succeeded, to hold it together and to then figure out what continuing success looks like to meet our next promotion goal, our next financial goal, our next influence goal? See, Joseph starts out his life self-promoting, saying, I can, as he tells his dream to his brothers and his parents and about how important he's going to be and how they're going to bow down to him. But after 13 years of dependence on God, Joseph's recognition of God's hand and his power, his reliance on God, is so much more deep and so much more full. And I think... There's something in that for all of us in in hindsight in life. We can look back and we can see moments in our lives which were discouraging, but we can look back on them and say there was purpose. God was there. Uh, where we, where you think you should, that job and that promotion should have be, been yours, where it wasn't, where you think that relationship should have been the right one, but it didn't last. In all those moments where it doesn't seem fair, it seems doesn't seem good or right, and it very well may not be in those moments. But after a while, and and unfortunately that a while can sometimes be really long and hard to wait through, you get to see God at work and God always bringing good, even in those difficult times. You see, God uses everything, the stuff that he intends and the evil that has nothing to do with him to turn it and bring about good in our lives. So how do you recognize God's hand in your life regularly. Now, we've talked about this as a church in the past, uh, just an exercise that helps us do this. We've talked about doing a timeline of your life where you write down the significant experiences, the good, the bad, the pain points, the turning points, the mentors moments, the, the big aha moments of your life, and, and then you reflect on it. And I think one of the most valuable reflection points when you do that exercise is to actually treat it as a kind of a reverse engineering of your life. So th- that means you you take who God has made you to be today and then you go back through your timeline and you kind of try to break down how God got you there. So just to help you understand how to do that, an example. So one of the areas that God has worked in my life in the number of last years is, is professionally is to lead through difficult situations and conflict. That's somewhere where he's worked. So as I started to think, how did you do that, God? Because honestly, I don't ever recall being good at conflict as a kid other than I caused a lot of it as a kid. So as I reflected on that, uh, the first thing that came to mind was this pivotal moment a few years ago, realizing God loved to work through me in that way. I was actually walking into this church while I was still working on the West Coast as a consultant that was facing huge problems. And it certainly wasn't the first time I had been in a conflict and intervention situation, but this one was particularly difficult and mystifying. I had no clue what I was going to do, no clue how we were going to solve this thing, and I was walking into a meeting with 50 people, and I was supposed to be the guy with the answers. I didn't have a clue. In that moment, I just remember simply walking through the front door of that church going, God, here goes. You've got to do this because I have no clue what's going on. Let's just go do this. And God showed up and healed some significant long-term pain and bitterness. There's a thriving, healthy church there today. I still get birthday wishes from a couple of the elders on Facebook just because of what God did in that time. As I continued to reverse engineer, I went back a little further to my first full-time church job. And I don't know why they did this. I, I, I look at this and think they were crazy, but my lead pastors, the, the church that I was a part of, within six months they decided Ross is going to be the guy who handles all the tough conflict because we don't like doing it, so he's going to do it. 
And I just started doing it, and God bless those efforts. And, and I look further back, and I keep reverse engineering, and I look back to my internship and counseling for my master's work, and I remember a time where I was sitting with a, a, a really abusive husband and his wife were in session with me, and the, this guy was ripped. He was huge. He was scary. And I didn't think we were going to get out of there in one piece. And God worked. We made it through the session. I take it back another step. I see this point where I was out with a friend talking with people about Jesus. We happened to run into this teenager who was wearing the Satan worship t-shirt. And so we were talking to this young teen about Jesus. And, and I saw the jaw of my friend falling all the way to the ground, shocked and embarrassed at how confrontational and rude I was in that conversation. And along with a couple of inter, other influences in that time, I realized I needed to do a master's degree in counseling because I not only lacked good people skills, I had destructive people skills. And it caused me to take a whole other degree focus. And then I stepped back further and I go all the way back to 10 years old. I was in, I'm in elementary school. I'm playing one-on-one basketball with my best friend, Jim Kleinusen. We both got really angry with each other uh, because we didn't think the other one was calling the fouls fairly in that game. And so we were both really competitive. We ended up in a fight. And I choke held my best friend until he was crying, laying on the ground. And as soon as he was incapacitated on the ground crying, I got up, I ran, I got my ball, I ran the block home because he was a whole lot bigger and stronger than I was. I was terrified of what would happen if he got up. I know that's awful. Your pastor was that awful, horrible 10-year-old. Jim lived. And I learned that if you want to be a really good friend, you don't choke hold your best friend. And Jim forgave me, and we went on to learn better ways of dealing with conflict. And, and by the way, I haven't choke held anybody since then, so you're, you, we're, we're okay. So God led me to be effective in conflict resolution because when I was 10, I hated the way Jim called fouls. And I got in a fight. And it shaped me because I began to realize that my weakness of anger and competitiveness and always needing to win was something God needed to change. And God worked through that. You see, the more you recognize your weakness and recognize God's power, the more you will see God's favor in your life. You'll see peace, not striving. You'll see contentment and joy, not the pressure to get to the next level. Why? Because God is the one who gives favor. And God can move you and God can move the pharaohs in your life or anyone else like a pawn on a chessboard. So recognize his hand in all of your life and don't take the glory for yourself. See, when you look a little further into Joseph's story, you actually see the depth to which this recognition of God went because he names his children around this. In verse, in, in verse 51, Joseph names his firstborn Manasseh, which means God has made me forget all my trouble in all my father's household. What he's saying there is God has healed the bitterness of my painful upbringing. God is with me. And he names the second child Ephraim, which means God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. He's recognizing God's hand at work in trouble, overcoming him even when he's experienced being a victim and giving Joseph favor against all odds. See, Joseph loves his kids, and he names them around the most profound lessons that he's learned. So every time he calls out his kids' names, he is reminding himself and reminding them of God's favor and God's faithfulness, and he's recognizing God's hand. 
I mean, think about it. None of us chose our DNA. None of us chose our family. None of us chose being born in America or being able to come to America. I I, I didn't control the opportunities that came my way. None of us control the opportunities that come our way. The second lesson Joseph gives us about breaking through success to rich contentment is that success and influence in leadership starts in being a good follower first. For many, again, success means being a leader in some form, whether it's at work, in the classroom, in the community, spiritually, in politics, or as a parent, or even just in your friendships. And great leadership, great influence starts first in being a good follower. See, I suspect for Joseph, being a good follower just simply started for survival's sake at the beginning. He was in a new land that was just making the best out of a bad situation, just trying to survive. But a couple of weeks ago, we first looked at the story of Joseph being thrown into prison. And the text in chapter 39 said this. It said, but while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. And he showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. And then last week, we ran into the same idea in chapter 40, talking about the cupbearer and the baker. And the text reads, the captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph. And he attended them. Did you catch the significance there? A lot of us miss it. I missed it for years. The prison warden worked for the captain of the guard. And the captain of the guard was who? It was Potiphar. Potiphar, the man who had thrown Joseph in prison because Joseph, according to the lie of Potiphar's wife, had attempted to rape his wife. In the second reference, the focus is no longer on Joseph serving the prison warden, but it's now upon serving Potiphar and following Potiphar. What kind of change has to take place in someone for them to follow someone who has abused them and treated them so unfairly and to serve them well and to seek out their favor so much that they will trust them again even when they think they've undermined them in the past? See, that's the ultimate definition of learning to be a good follower. Not just being faithful when things are good, but being faithful when things are hard, when they're disappointing, when they're unjust, when they're unfair, still seeking the good of the person to whom you are under their authority. So how does that challenge the way we relate to our bosses or our colleagues or those in authority in our culture around us? See, if you're still on the journey and you haven't seen success yet, the lesson of Joseph is just keep going, keep, keep serving, keep faithfully doing any opportunity God brings your way to work well, to serve well, to love well, follow those in authority over you well, seek the blessing of other people around you, don't give up, be faithful. See, that is what forms the basis for what I believe is the best biblical definition of success in God's eyes. It's breaking through success to rich containment. That's found in success being defined as faithfully following God and serving others each day. Now, think about it seriously. Isn't that the underlying theme of this entire story of Joseph? We maybe even talked about it too much, right? A man who follows God into success, uh, who can't even imagine the success that God's going to bring him, but he's just faithful day after day, serving the good of those around him. I mean, yeah, Joseph had a dream, but Joseph had no control 
over setting the goals and achieving the goals that would bring him to that place of fulfillment of the dream. For Joseph, the definition of success wasn't even becoming the second in command in Egypt. He had no clue about that. He couldn't even imagine that possibility. See, I think an honest reading of Joseph shows he didn't define success any different while he was in prison than he did when he stood before Pharaoh than he did years later after he had successfully enriched Egypt and brought them through a difficult time. Joseph didn't become the number two in Egypt and say, I made it. No, Joseph lived making it every day. See, the decision in Joseph's mind that defined success for him was made years earlier. Joseph was going to be faithful to God no matter what the situation was and as such serve and bring God's goodness to everyone he met. So in Matthew 25, Jesus tells a story illustrating this definition of success. The story goes like this. This master went away for a long trip. To one of his servants, he gave 500000 To another, he gave 200000 To another, he gave $100,000. And sometime later, so there again, in the story, Jesus, there's this indefinite time period that we've seen in Joseph's life as well, this, this maddening, not knowing when things are going to happen that we struggle with in life in trying to reach our goals. Sometime later, the master returns. Each servant comes before him. The one with 500000 says, look, here's a million. I made the money grow. And the master says, what? Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with little. I'll put you in charge of much. The one with 200000 comes and says, hey, look, I, I doubled it. It's 400000 He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in little. I will put you in charge of much. So earlier, when I asked you to define success, that, that's a hard question for a lot of us. Yet if you need a definition of success, look no further than Joseph and Jesus' story. Success is standing before God someday and hearing, well done, good. You did things for the good reason. You always sought the good of others, good and faithful. You just, day by day, look to where you could be faithful, servant. Now, you may have a big dream in your life like Joseph. If you do, Joseph's story shows us that you reaching that dream is in God's hands and God's control, not yours. And your main path to success is simple faithfulness in the daily opportunities to serve God and serve others well. For some of you, that big dream for life, that's a really hard thing for you. When we talk about that, you get frustrated because you go, I don't know what that is for me. But even if you don't have that concept of a big dream for your life, it's no big deal. Not a big deal at all. Because the path to the best good life for you, the path to success is no different. Success is daily faithfulness to whatever opportunity God gives you to love him and serve others each day. Because success is one day standing before God and hearing him say, well done, good and faithful servant. So where does God want you to refocus and recognize his power to fulfill your life and your dreams and rest in that power and simply take on this daily doing good faithfully idea. Would you stand with me as we pray? Lord, thank you so much for giving us scriptures that just teach us so much about your love. 
and your power, your control that help us sort through things like this, Lord? Because I know for me, I know for many of us, when we think about success, when we think about meaning, when we think about our identity in life, it just feels like so much pressure. God, even when we do achieve things, it just feels like we get to celebrate for just a moment, and then it's like, oh, no, we've got to hold it all together. We've got to do more. Father, this story of Joseph, the story of the parable of the talents that we just sowed, Lord, would you come and make that real in our lives, that we can just rest today in the rich contentment of your definition of success, that we just get to trust you, and we get to do the good faithfully today. Holy Spirit, would you come and just relieve any pressure that any of us have felt over over being good enough for or success right now and just speak to us even as we continue to worship about how pleased you are with us, how much you love us, how much you're with us right now. So Lord, we turn to you now and worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.